Like I said, we're finishing off this series today. It's a series that's taken us from Palm Sunday where Jesus entered triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. It fast-forwarded to Monday, Thursday. Monday, Latin for mandate. The mandate or command to love one another as I have loved you. It was a mandate that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room. We looked at that particular mandate. We also looked at the foot washing that Jesus gave to his disciples on that same upper room situation. He gave the mandate and he foot washed. We went to Friday, this last Friday, two days ago, where we observed two very dramatic things that are depicted on the cross. One of them, the depth of God's love for us, is shown on the cross. It defines the love of God. We know what love is because Jesus died for us, but also on the cross we saw the seriousness of our our sin. Both of those depicted in dramatic measure And now we've gone through Black Saturday or Dark Saturday and we arrive on Easter Sunday or sometimes referenced as Resurrection Sunday. Let me get things rolling this morning by reading a fairly large portion of John 20. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. Let me read it and then we'll start unpacking it. Now, on the first day of the week, it's a Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple is John, same writer of this particular gospel, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, we have, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. I I need to confess something uh, to you this morning before we start walking through this text. And that is, as I was preparing for our time together this morning and was spending some time in the text, the first thing that it did was it just bugged me. And it bugged me not because it's not a great text. It's a great text. There's a lot of cool things that go on it, in on it. It's a great text that way. But it bugged me because there's so much detail laid out in it. It's, there's a lot of minutia, 
Right, just, I mean, John just talks about things here and there. He talks about this race, who came in first. He has this, he has this great passion over linen cloths. Talks about linen cloths ad nauseum, right? Just, he's a bed, bath, and beyond guy. I don't know what his story is. Just, just absolutely detail. Or he's talking about not just angels, but angels in white, he talks about Mary weeping, thinking it's a gardener, and then seeing it's Jesus, not getting it, getting it. All of this stuff, and that bugs me. Really bugs me. There's so much detail in there. Just an, since I'm confessing another confession. If I come up to you and I say, tell me about your day. Confession, I really don't want to know every detail of your day. You know what I mean? Big picture it for me. That's fine. Good day. Good day. Highlight one or two things. Well, I did this. I did this. I don't want to know the details. If you had lunch, great. You had lunch. Don't tell me what you had for lunch, right? Unless you had chicken, bone caught in your throat, you started choking. That's important to the story. I want to hear about that. If you drove to the store, I really don't need to know about the drive unless you got in some altercation and dropped gloves with someone in an intersection. That's fine too. Tell me about it. I'm happy to hear about it. But I don't really want to know the details. Tell me the things important to the story and important to your day. And that's why what John does here bugs me so much. Because what you need to understand about me is I believe with all of my heart that John was inspired and led by the Holy Spirit when he penned this gospel. And therefore, every little detail matters. That it's not filler. That he wasn't trying to complete a certain amount of words. This isn't an essay that has to be a certain amount of length. John writes it inspired by the Holy Spirit for a particular reason to give us the details he gives us. So in my prep, I kept on asking, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help me to see what you want me to see so that I can go before the people of Westside and the ones coming today and help them see perhaps what you, the Holy Spirit, want all of us to see. So I kept on asking and asking and agonizing over that and coming out of that, I came up with a handful of things that I think the Holy Spirit, through John, and the great detail that he gives us here, wants us to see coming out of it. Here's the first thing. I think John, as led by the Spirit, wants us to see that many come to Jesus on Easter for different reasons. Why do I say that? Well, notice again verse 1. It begins there in verse 1 with Mary, not the mom of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. And it tells us that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, she goes to the tomb. Now, why did she go to the tomb? Well, she didn't go to the tomb thinking that the, the stone would be rolled away and Jesus would have risen from the grave. She didn't go to that to the tomb for that reason because we read that when she arrives there and sees that the stone has been rolled away and that the body is not in the tomb, she assumes grave robbery. She assumes someone had taken away the Lord. You see that in verse 2. So in her mind, some sort of grave robbery had taken place. In her mind, the tragedy of Friday is ramped up with Sunday's arrival. So the question is, why'd she come? Well, probably to pay homage to Jesus, to mourn, like many today who visit the gravesite of a loved one. They go there to pay respects, maybe go there to think, maybe go there to pray, whatever it is, we do that today. But let me ask you a question. 
If you went to the gravesite of someone you loved and you found the grave dug up and the body gone, what would you do? What would you think? Well, I think you would probably do and think exactly what Mary thought and did here. She runs. She runs and finds someone, and the people that she found first are Peter and John, who immediately, it seems, run back to the tomb. But did they go believing Jesus had, rid had risen from the grave? Well, the sense is that while en route, they did not. So why did they go then? Well, I think they went for the same reason why we run to tragedy. We do, whether we realize it or not. If you're outside, you hear two cars crash, you have a tendency to want to go look. We do as people, sort of woven into us, we run toward tragedy. There is a reason why TV news has the adage, if it bleeds, it leads. There is something about gazing, try as hard as we tries we hard to resist it to gazing at things that are tragic in nature. If a plane crashes, if a tsunami lands, if the earth shakes, if a boat sinks, and there's footage of it, we look. We run to good things, there's no doubt, but we run to bad things too. And I think that's what we have here with Peter and John. With that in mind, can I ask you why you're here today? I mean, I, note, I noted some reasons why possibly you're here today on the front end. Some of you may be here because this is what you do on Sundays. You're here. Unless the snow's good, you're here, right? You're here. Pretty much 52 Sundays a year. For some of you, you're here again because you want to watch a friend or a family member be baptized. For some of you, you're here because it's Easter, and this is what you do come hell or high water on Easter, Seems like the right thing to do on Easter, so you attend an Easter service gathering or something like that. For some of you, you're here kicking and screaming. Truth be told, you've come because someone has asked you and pestered you and grabbed you and driven you and promised you a great brunch after, if you come, right? You know what I'm saying? See you in the back nodding. So yes, you're here for a variety of reasons. Whatever the reason, welcome. It's our joy and privilege having you. But more than that, my hopeful prayer is that you encounter something today that perhaps you weren't expecting while en route. That's my hope. A second thing that I think John wants us to see coming out of the details found within this text is I think John wants us to see that many miss seeing Jesus on Easter for different reasons too. Peter and John, like we saw, make their way to the tomb. When they arrive at the tomb, things will change dramatically for them. But up to that point, they were missing seeing things about Jesus that were all important. Why were they missing them? Well, verse 9 tells us why. Let me read that one more time for you. It says this about Peter and John. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So what is their issue? Why were they missing something about Jesus? Well, they didn't understand that their scripture, meaning the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, their Bible, pointed ahead to Jesus, a Messiah, but not just a Messiah, a Messiah who had to come and die and would be resurrected. They didn't see it yet. They didn't get it. 
And because of that, they were missing seeing Jesus on this first Easter. What was Mary's issue? Well, Mary's inability to see is, de is depicted in very real and physical ways in verses 14 and 15. Where when turning and looking at Jesus, it tells us that she didn't recognize Jesus. How is that possible? Well, one answer is that Jesus could have blinded her in a sense. Not blinded as she couldn't see anything, but blinded in terms of limiting her ability to see Jesus, recognize Jesus. Where we get that is in places like Luke 24 where the disciples on the road to Emmaus see Jesus, but they don't recognize Jesus. Jesus had blinded their eyes. So could that have possibly been? Well, absolutely yes, but I believe any choice to do so on Jesus' part came because she had no place for the Messiah that Jesus came to be in the first place. As D.A. Carson writes, the question posed by Jesus in verse 15, whom are you seeking, could be read in context. What kind of Messiah are you seeking? In other words, in Mary's life, preconceived notions and conceptions about what the Messiah was to be about limited her. She couldn't see him. And she wasn't seeing things that she needed to see that were all important. For Peter and John, what was limiting them so they couldn't see Jesus on this first Easter as he was meant to be seen was a misunderstanding and ignorance of the scriptures. Both of those things kept them from seeing Jesus on this first Easter. Why I highlight this for you this morning is because the relevance of these, that these reasons that kept them are very common today. See, some of you just simply haven't heard that much about Jesus. And in 2014, that shouldn't be a surprise, certainly not a surprise to me. You haven't heard much about who he is, what he taught, what he, what he said, what he claimed, uh, who people are without him, who people are in him, the transformation that he made in so many people in 2,000 years thereafter. You just haven't heard much about it. So you have an ignorance to the story of Jesus, not an ignorance coming from a lack of intelligence, certainly. It's an ignorance coming from a lack of information. That's why Paul, in a study that we just came through leading up to Easter, he asks in Romans 10, how are they to believe if they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? See, that's our call. That's our role as a ministry. That's why the mission of Westside is to make Jesus known. Because people don't know much about Jesus. They have a lack of information. And that's hindering you from seeing Jesus as you need to see Jesus and that's our role, corporately and individually, whether we gather here on a Sunday or whether we scatter day by day. For others, like Mary, you may have no room for a Messiah, especially a Messiah that challenges your worldview so much so that even if you were to gaze at him face to face, so to speak, you still wouldn't recognize him. See, there's relevance in this that we miss seeing Jesus for a variety of reasons. And I think that John wants to highlight that for us because 2,000 or so years after this, it's still pertinent and relevant to us. Here's the third thing I think John wants us to see. I think John wants us to see that how he came to believe specifically is how we are to come to believe as well. What do I mean by that? Well, remember on the front end I talked about, man, there's a lot of detail. Man, there's a lot of detail. One of the things that John details is this foot race that him and, he and Peter have. 
And John just happens to highlight in verse 4, he got there first. And you're like, John, what are you doing, man? You just being cocky? Right? What are you doing? What are you, like, Peter, you didn't come in second. You're the first loser. Like, is that what he's doing for time and eternity? Right? Hey, Peter, you can walk on water, but you're weak sauce on land. Is that what he's saying? <laughs> you know what I mean? Hey, Peter, cock-a-doodle-doo, Peter, cock a little too soon, maybe. Just like it's only a day or maybe a little too soon for that. But what's he doing? Just being cocky here? I mean, what, what's going on? Well, I don't think so. Certainly hope not. And I say that because even though John highlights that he arrives at the tomb first, he also records that Peter is the first to go in. See, that's Peter. Ready, fire, aim, right? That's Peter. No hesitation. In spite of breaking many, many, many Jewish regulations regarding proximity to the dead, Peter still goes in. Damn the consequences. Peter goes in. And seemingly emboldened by Peter's bravery, John then enters. But notice what verse 8 says. It's so critical for us to get. John enters and verse 8 says that he saw and he believed. Saw what exactly? Nothing. He saw nothing. And he believed. See, John wasn't just the first to arrive at the tomb. He was the first to believe, and he believed based on the tomb's emptiness. So why does John record all of this in such great detail? Being cocky? No, he records this in such great detail because we're to come to believe the same way he did, by racing to an empty tomb with all we've got and believe based on seeing nothing. I mean, we're going to baptize a bunch of Westsiders this afternoon. One of the things that we do right before they go in the water is we ask them a question based out of a text in Romans 10. Do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? And do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Because if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. We ask them that question. They say, I do. We baptize them. Based on this... They've never seen the empty tomb. They've never seen the empty tomb, but we have the example here of John, and we have the example for us to follow, to raise to an empty tomb and believe based on its emptiness. The reason why I say this, I want you to notice Thomas. Thomas, later on in John 20, we didn't walk through the text all the way to the event of Jesus and Thomas, but we know Thomas. Thomas the doubter gets a bad rap. Thomas the doubter. Jesus appears to Thomas, says to Thomas, Thomas, put your fingers here, put your fingers here, touch me, Thomas. Thomas touches, says, my God, my Lord, and he worships Jesus. But notice what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That blessing is for us too, us side and friends and visitors and guests. We will be blessed too. 
Now, I know some of you may be doubtful regarding this. I can almost feel it from some of you. So let me ask you a question. Just stay in here for a while. Let's camp here for a little while. Why was the stone rolled away? To let Jesus out? The stone rolled away to let Jesus out. Like Jesus rose from the dead and then went, uh oh, there's a back, oh, there's a, sto- there's a stone here. That's lousy. Didn't think through that. Now, if you think, yeah, it was rolled away so he could get out, just notice, put your pretty eyes down to verse 19. Again, Mr. Detail, right? Johnny, the detailer. On the evening of that first, of that day, so same day that night, the first day of the week, the door's being locked. Okay, John, why are you telling us that? Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jewish leadership. Same individuals and their cohorts that killed Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. John highlights the same thing in verse 26. I won't read it, but how Jesus came, even though the doors were locked and stood amongst them. West side, the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let the disciples in. To let them in to see nothing. See, you don't keep Jesus out if he wants in. And you don't keep Jesus in if he wants out. There ain't no stone, there ain't no door that's gonna keep our Jesus from going where our Jesus wants to go. Before moving on, here's another question. John's infatuation with linen cloths. I mean, over infatuation. It's like, it's trippy. It's trippy. He mentions linen cloths in verse five. He mentions linen cloths in verse 6. He mentions linen cloths in verse 7. He talks about a face cloth. talks about folding them. <laughs> Why? I think there's some really important reasons for us to understand why. The first is they confirm that Jesus' body wasn't moved. See, if you were to rob a grave and move a body, a body that had been ravaged like Jesus' body had been, you wouldn't unwrap it for obvious reasons. A second reason is because the resurrection of Jesus, a resurrection foreshadowed by the rising of Lazarus, was to be shown as a better resurrection. See, note this again, John the detailer, know what he says about the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. The man who had died came out, Lazarus. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here we read of nicely folded, yet I am sure blood-stained linens left behind. Here's my hope. When Jesus killed death and opened his eyes on that very first day of the week, I hope he said, linens, verily, verily, I say to you, get off me and fold yourself. A third reason why I think John highlights the linened linen cloths and why they're mentioned is because they're grave clothes and Jesus just conquered the grave. See, death had been defeated and thus his clothes are altogether inappropriate. 
It's like wearing a white linen suit to a funeral. It's like wearing a a black suit to a garden party. And a garden party is about to begin. My clothes are inappropriate. We have clothes that are inappropriate. We're supposed to cast off our old clothes in Jesus and clothe ourselves anew. We see this modeled here by Jesus. Old, that death, wrapped, done, defeated, killed, destroyed, off of me. By the way, before we move on, don't miss the bookends of impossibility that mark the life of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Just note, how did Jesus' life begin? Virgin birth. How does it end? Empty tomb. Two bookends of impossibility that demonstrate and remind us from beginning to end that nothing is impossible with God. Don't miss the beauty of that, what John does and the story of God does for us. Now, I realize that some of you must be thinking, okay, uh, Norman, I need more than nothing to believe in. You're going, okay, look in a dark hole where there is nothing and believe. I get it. Which leads to another thing I believe that John wants us to see here, and that is he wants us to see the grace of Jesus shown in his willingness to break through our disbelief. Why do I say that? Well, number one, Jesus returns to Mary who didn't get it yet. She went to mourn. We find her weeping. She thinks that Jesus has been taken. And Jesus comes to her. And we read how he breaks into her brokenness and her preconceived notions and disbelief. He does that, as you see in verse 16, by calling her name. Jesus said to her, Mary, He goes from addressing her as woman in verse 15 to Mary in verse 16. Don't miss the gracious tenderness of that. This shouldn't surprise us, by the way, for Jesus does declare in John chapter 10, the sheep hear his voice. Let me personalize this. The sheep hear my voice, and I call my own sheep by name, and I lead them out. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. See, Jesus, the good shepherd, calls Mary one of his sheep. The sheep he laid his life down for and she came to him. And what does Jesus go and do with Thomas later on in the same chapter? He goes to Thomas and presents himself before Thomas and says, Thomas, touch me. And Thomas is changed. Touch me and see. A point of application, by the way, if you just want to look at verse 28, was Thomas's response in light of Jesus showing himself to him. Just notice what it says in verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Why does that stand out? Well, what did Thomas just do in verse 27? He put his finger in the side of his God and into the wounds of his God's hands. Just notice that. This is a proper and only appropriate response to God dying for us. 
By the way, before I move on, there's something I think is really tender in this and hopeful and encouraging for some of us too. Again, I didn't read through the text totally, but I mentioned how Jesus appeared in the evening of that first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday. He appeared to the disciples. He just appeared. They are hiding themselves. But at that appearance, Thomas isn't there. He's not there at all, but Jesus appears to the disciples. And then what the disciples do is they go to Thomas and they tell him, We saw Jesus. We touched Jesus. We hung out with Jesus. Thomas, he rose from the dead. Thomas says, I don't believe you. I mean, just note that, by the way. Good friends, people that have done life together, ministry together, gone through the hard times together, good times together. I mean, these are 11 brothers. And Thomas says to his brothers, I don't believe you unless I see him For myself, I won't believe you. And so in that text that we looked at in verses 20 or so on, 23 on, Jesus appears to Thomas. But how many days did he wait before that, between the two appearances, between the appearances to the 10 now to Thomas? Well, verse 26 tells us, eight days. Eight days. Eight days of doubt and anguish and a crisis of fate, bewilderment for Thomas. Thomas staying in that plight for eight days. And I think there is something for us in this too. And I think that what we see here is that, yes, Jesus will enter our doubt, but that he is also willing to leave us in places like that for a time before entering again. Not as a punishment, however, but because a necessary journey needs to take place. What's the encouragement in that for us? Well, the encouragement in that for us is that some of you have loved ones that don't believe your testimony. You pray for them. You share your life with them. You tell them about Jesus. Say, I don't believe you. And you're struggling in that. And you're discouraged and you're wondering, well, I think what we get here is a call not to lose heart, to keep praying that Jesus will call their name like he did with Mary. Or like he does here with Thomas and say, touch me. Before I wrap up, let me give a plug for something that we do at Westside. Matt will talk about it on the back end. We have something on Tuesday, starting again this Tuesday, that we do periodically called Foundations. I bring that up because the plight of Mary and Thomas may resonate with many of you. And you go, I need to know more. I got doubts. I've got wonders. I don't get this. You really believe that? We get that many of you are in that place. And so we have this particular class that runs for successive weeks for you to come ask the questions that are bugging you. The doubt that you're living with, the stuff that need to be, needs to be undergirded perhaps. Matt will talk about it more on the back end. Before closing, I want us to appreciate the transition that takes place in our move from Friday to Sunday. It's a transition from bound to free, from dead to risen, occupied to empty, calamity to peace, and violence to hope. And it's also a transition from the beaten body of Jesus to a glorified body of Jesus. 
But what do you notice about Jesus' glorified body? It's dramatic. It's still scarred. The glorified body of Jesus is still scarred. We see that in verse 20 and 27. As I heard somewhere, and I paraphrase, the only hint of sin in heaven will be the scars on the body of our glorified Jesus. This same John writes the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, he sees a vision that he records. I'm going to have us read through this together audibly. We've never done this before. I want you to read with me. There's going to be two long slides, one after the other, that I want you to read. We're going to read together. I'm going to help you with that. But as we read, there are two key words in this text. One is lamb. One is slain. The vision is of a lamb that had been slain. In the Greek, the word slain literally means slaughtered. I want us to read this together, so we put it on the screen. I'll get us going, then we'll read out loud. Please join me. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Westside, we will forever worship a lamb that was slain. That's our Jesus. The final thing that I believe John wants us to see is more hinted at here, but Paul, as we will see, makes clear elsewhere, and that is John wants us to see and remember that something better is coming. John declares to Thomas, or through Thomas, to us, blessed are those who don't see and believed. Not blessed now only, but blessed with an ongoing blessing that lasts forever. And it's a blessing that rests on the resurrection of Jesus. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first, but we, those who believe now, will follow, follow thereafter. There is something better coming for us because of the resurrection of Jesus. When I was a kid, one of the things that I loved to do when I was a kid was go to Grandma's house out in Abbotsford, where all good menos hang out. 
And I used to go there, little kid, man, my grandma on my dad's side, she's a great cook, and she would have the family over for feasts, for celebrations, days like this. She'd make these meatballs, ooh, man, meatball, big suckers, and potatoes au gratin, just loved it. And these Mennonite buns called Schwiebach means two cheeks. You'd rip them apart, just love them. It was just heaven. It was great. And then juice that was fizzy, that was a whole new thing for me. Looked like orange juice, but there's fizz in it. It's like more. I need more. Um, and it was just great. And remember the kids' table in the kitchen, right? Adults out there, cool kids in the kitchen, eating, just taking in this feast. More meatballs, Grandma. More meatballs, Grandma. Just, it was lovely. Then you would feast, and then Grandma, because she's a good grandma, she would come around and start clearing things off the table, right? Start collecting the dishes, and to be a good little grandson, I would, I would put the utensils back on the plate. But then my grandmother said the most beautiful three words that any kid could ever hear. Keep the fork. You know what keep the fork means. There's something better coming. Keep, keep the fork means the feast is good. Right here, this is good. Oh, but there's something. Dessert. Dessert's coming. If John was here today, I think he'd like to say one more thing to us. Keep the fork. Let me pray. Jesus, again, we thank you. And it seems so empty, but we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for what you have done for us. And everything we are and our, everything that, that we have already received and anything that we will continue to receive and re- receive forever comes because of what you've done and your gracious gift to us. So thank you. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son, Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for being willing to die in our place. No one takes your life. You lay it down and you raise it up again. So thank you. I pray for everybody here, Father, that has come today, wherever they're at in their journey with you, I pray, I pray, whatever brought them here, that perhaps they would encounter something they didn't first expect on their way here. Whatever that is, I pray that they would receive that today, that you would open their eyes. And I pray that those people that don't know you, you would call them today. And for others that are perhaps full of doubt, that you'd speak into that doubt and they would see something very palpable and tangible today, almost touchable and they would come to you and lives would be changed i thank you that you continue to work i thank you for the ones getting baptized that are demonstrating the spirit works and continues to work and that you a holy spirit are transforming lives that you're as real today as you were two thousand years ago and eternity past as you will continue to be i thank you that you continue to work give you praise for that So thank you for all of this. We pray for all of this in the beautiful, wonderful name of our Savior and King and Messiah, Jesus. Amen.